Welcome to Soundpost, dedicated to exploring the meaning of concert music in today's world through conversations with its leading artists. I am Carlos Miguel Prieto. And I am Raul Gomez. And our guest today is the myth, the man, the legend, Gil Shaham. Gil, how are you? Wow, what an introduction. Thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you made my day. All right. It, it's so great to be with you guys. And I just want to say, uh, this is so Jetsons, you know? <laughs> Here we are, you know, in four different corners of the world and talking to each other. But in a way, it makes me miss our experience last year even more. I wish I, I wish we were all in Mexico together now. And of course, you were the uh, guest soloist with the Orcos de Americas and their Mexico tour last summer in 2019. It feels like a century ago. Yeah. <laughs> what, what a crazy time, right? Let me take you back a, a little bit further in time, uh, sort of pre-Jetson <laughs> era here, though, though not so much. 2011, so this was actually nine years ago, I was in Aspen, I was a conducting fellow, and that year you did something that I didn't know was possible. Over two weeks, you played four different concertos with four different orchestras in Aspen, uh, written in the 1930s. You, and I remember, I'll never forget this, you played Walton, you played Bartok Number no. 2, Stravinsky, and Hartmann's Concerto Funebre, and then I think you played a Haydn concerto in G also that same summer. <laughs> four, uh, two weeks, four different concertos from the 1930s. Now, uh, whose idea was this? <laughs> um, uh, obviously, there is some uh, masochistic vein in the Aspen Music Festival that they would allow me to do that. Um, I have to say, I had a great time playing this, this music. Um, you know, at first I thought it was daunting, and then I thought, oh, what if I just lower my standards even lower, you know, <laughs> and just enjoy it, you know? It was extraordinary, and you, the Stravinsky concerto was the one you played with, with us, with the, uh, conduct, the conducting orchestra there. It was great to work with you back then. Now, if I remember, I played with three different conductors for the Stravinsky. Is that correct? That is correct. So Stravinsky has four movements. I don't remember how we divided it up. Me neither. I was not one of the conductors who conducted your concerto, but I was there. I was in the orchestra. And of course, before that and after that, in New Orleans with Carlos Miguel, I was playing in the orchestra when you were guest solo. So okay, let's talk about the two of you and, and your time working together. Maybe it started with last summer in Mexico. Um, Carlos. I, I just, um, I, I missed that time. I was thinking about it all during the year. And now that I'm with you, I just had such a blast, you know, such great memories. Um, we played Beethoven Concerto. We were in, in Mexico. We were traveling together. You were working hard. <laughs> uh, you know, you were doing a bunch of things at the time, if I remember. <laughs> right? Yeah, well, I... I... I, I'm also music director of the Mineria Orchestra, which is a, a fabulous world-class orchestra. So I was doing the two things at the same time. Uh, but uh, the, the collaboration with you was the highlight of the summer and perhaps the highlight of the musical year in, in Mexico City. You played 
an amazing Beethoven. And uh, since I know that uh, our listeners know Beethoven concerto, uh, well, first of all, I, I, I will say that uh, you played it in Mexico City, in León, uh, in Guadalajara, which are uh, some of our musical, uh, the best halls that we have. And in all places where you played, it was absolutely packed. And what was fantastic from a musical experience, of course, is not only the honesty and the beauty of your playing, uh, but is the fact that you are such a consummate chamber musician. Uh, and we, we can talk about that a little bit because uh, people feel that there is a separation between a soloist and a chamber musician. And you are a living example of why chamber music is so important because you come with an orchestra and you make music with the orchestra and you go with the ebb and flow of the orchestra, sometimes uh, taking a phrase from the oboe and, and, and filling it with your sound and sometimes very, very generously uh, allowing for the orchestra to have to take its time or to brush a little bit, etc. But there's one thing which you did with the uh, rondo in the Beethoven, no, no, which was actually a before and after for everyone who was on that stage and in the audience, which is that you explained to us, and uh, of course the Orchestra of the Americas is the perfect place for this, because we are open to improvisation, we are open to, to interpretations, we are open to new ideas, and you explained to us that one of the reoccurrences of the rondo, well, I, I seem to remember that you explained to us that Beethoven, in the writing of the concerto, did not write every reoccurrence in the rondo down exactly. Therefore, you took some liberties in one of them, which, which started with a little improv um, uh, you along with a timpani player. Tell us about this because this was so, so refreshing and so unusual. Well, I have to say about what you were saying, talking about before, about cha chamber music and uh, being open and generous to your fellow musicians on stage. It really um, comes from you. You know, it comes from our fearless leader, from the conductor <laughs> who is open to these kind of crazy experiments, you know, violinists want to do. And, you know, it really is that spirit that, um, you know, inspired me during those performances and inspired the orchestra. And by the way, the orchestra played, you know, like all-star, you know, it's just the level of, of the, everybody, the wind soloists in the Beethoven concerto, the string players, so beautiful. I loved it. And, um, Really, I, I couldn't have been happier because whenever I brought up an idea to experiment, you were like, sure, let's try, <laughs> you know? And you're normally a very polite person, um, but uh, I didn't expect you to be that accommodating. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, with the, with the rondo in, in the violin concerto, you know, what, what an inspired piece. And I guess this is the, the Beethoven year. And uh, what, what an inspiring man, what an inspiring musician. You know, I always think of, of Beethoven as uh, the 
poster person of the Enlightenment, you know? He really was all those philosophical ideas and uh, thinking about the individual and the rights of, of human beings. And uh, that's all in, in there, you know? That's all part of the music. With the, with the violin concerto, this was 1806, and the soloist was uh, Franz Clement, and uh, Beethoven sort of jokingly dedicated the piece to him, um, you know, asking for clemency or, or something like that. And, um, and he was a composer in the zone, to borrow from, you know, sports uh, vernacular. <laughs> he was just on fire writing one immortal masterpiece after the other, just so quickly and so inspired. And in the case of the violin concerto, the legend was people said the ink was still drying on the page the morning of the performance. And, uh, you know, the, the musicians practically sight-read the concerto at the dress rehearsal, which is really saying something for the soloists um, technical prowess, you know, for Clement's uh, violinistic abilities. Um, and I, I'm very lucky to have seen and, and to have a copy of the of Beethoven's handwritten manuscript. And as you say, the, the recurrence of the rondo is not written out. He, uh, he in fact, he leaves, leaves eight pages blank <laughs> for each recurrence. And he says, da capo al tema, you know, play the theme again. And, um, and, you know, when you look at other rondos of Beethoven from the time, and, uh, and when you look at uh, rondos by other composers from the time, it was very common to, uh, to play the theme, you know, and, and vary it, maybe a little variation or in a different setting. And so I guess what, what I thought we would try to do was... Uh, do a cadenza, maybe similar to the iteration of the rondo theme in the, you know, the the polonaise theme in the in the triple concerto, sort of on that cadential six-four chord, and uh, and also we have some writings from the piano version of the violin concerto, also by Beethoven, and so I, I tried to you know use elements of, of those and we experimented with that and yeah I I'll never forget it I loved it I loved it uh, of course the Mexican audience as you know and actually as any audience that that listens to you goes crazy at the end uh, because of the beauty of your playing the the combination of of virtuo virtuoso playing and depth and. Of course, they were asking for an encore. And you were, I, I would say, 99% of soloists uh, bring one or two encores and they just play on their own. And Gil, because for those of you who don't know Gil, Gil is a, an amazing world, uh, world-class violinist, but he is an even more amazing and world-class generous person. So Gil understood very nicely uh, that he could play with a concertmaster of the orchestra who's a very, very highly accomplished 
Aubrey is her name, a violinist who is now actually starting a, a solo career. And excellent violinist. Excellent violinist. And well, <laughs> initially, if I remember correctly, in the first con- in the first concert, you played um, one movement from uh, from Bach double, uh, and then in the second one, you played two movements from Bach double. And I believe by the third one, it was up to that plus uh, Prokofiev two violin sonata, one of the movements. Uh, and if there would have been more concerts, maybe it would just have just gone on forever. And <laughs> I cannot say enough to how much fun that was because I actually joined the orchestra to play the Bach. So it yes, really felt. Yes, and you played the violin. <laughs> I played in the second second violin uh, section, and it it was, I think, for her and for all of us, and especially for the young musicians, such an inspiring, such an inspiring um, experience. But but I would like to ask you about something which uh, I've I I. Uh, when we once worked in New Orleans, uh, you took me aside and in one of those orchestral breaks, uh, you started playing Bach Chacon. And you started playing not only Chacon, but some other movements from Sonatas and Partitas, which I don't know if you were about to play them in Aspen or had just played them in Aspen. And I... The, the question that I have for you it has to do with the sonatas and partitas and your own uh, experience with them. Because if I am guessing correctly, and I may be guessing wrong, you went through a very strict schooling, a very traditional, uh, with some of the legends uh, your, your, your musical lineage is really violinistic royalty. Yet, I am guessing that at some point in your life, you reached a point where you said, the tempo that I was taught or the tempi that I thought for these pieces perhaps don't make sense to me today. And perhaps I shall try something new. And I know because I know people who were present in, in Aspen, I believe, who were absolutely amazed at your interpretation and at how you were able to capture the dance element and the essence of the music. So can you tell us a little bit about this combination between your background you may even want to share and about what it means to find at a certain point in life your own voice and your own mind wow um yeah i guess it's an amazing journey we're on right musicians well let's see i guess firstly about the encores you know (laughs) i certainly couldn't get up there and dance the samba (laughs) so so I was thrilled that you were willing to join us and play, play fiddle. And Aubrey, as as you said, is really a first class, excellent violinist. 
And uh, it was just so heartening to be around these young people who love music and are so accomplished with music, you know. And uh, yeah, I guess so now as a middle-aged musician, I can, uh, I can, uh, you know, I can affirm, yeah, I did go through a kind of a midlife crisis affecting my Bach solo sonatas and partidas. <laughs> Maybe there's something about um, just being older and having a little more perspective. And uh, th there were maybe a, a couple of moments. This is going back already 10 years or, oh gosh, maybe more, 15, more than 15 years. Um, I remember hearing, you know, that very famous Mozart D minor fantasia, you know, the piano. Excuse my singing. Uh -huh. You know, that's a um, fascinating piece that I think it's marked Adagio and then Andante for the next section and then Allegretto for the final section. And I was listening to this piece and I thought, you know, the pulse stays the same. <laughs> it's really the same pulse for all three sections. You know, even though he writes it, you know, he writes these movement headings. So maybe, maybe there's a different meaning to these, these words at the top of the page, you know, because they do describe the music perfectly. They do describe, you know, the first section is an andante, the second section is an adagio, the third section is an allegretto. But maybe it doesn't mean the pulse has to change, maybe even the metronome. Anyway, so I started questioning everything. And um, when it came to the Bach sonatas and partitas, you know, I remember looking at the menuet in the third partita. You know, I'd always played it. Akasha, I, I don't have the fiddle here, but, you know, I, I'd always play... And I was sitting there and I thinking, well, now, how does this relate to other menuets that Bach wrote? <laughs> you know, I mean, even if I were to just think of, um, you know, uh, from the Anna Magdalena, but you know, and what if this menuet is? And the honest truth is that I just thought I like the swing of it better. You know, I thought it just swings better like that. And, um, and I started going through every one of those dances and even the movements that are not called the dances, you know, so the C major fugue, um, I, I don't remember the numbers, but, you know, people often wrote about the C major fugue. It's the longest of all of Bach's fugues, you know, uh, coming in at 10 minutes or so, something like that. I don't remember what numbers. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, but wait a second, this writing looks very much like the writing for a gavotte. And what, <laughs> what if you play this at the tempo of a gavotte? And sure enough, it is marked a la breve, you know, and it, it comes in at about half 
that, <laughs> uh, that marking. And so, yeah, that's my little midlife crisis. You know, I, I was always told the older you get, the slower is your tempi. But in my case, maybe a little bit the reverse. I mean, you, <laughs> you are young men over there, so uh, you, you wouldn't know. But um, in my experience, temp, tempi have kind of gotten faster as I got older. And let me ask you, Gil, what was your relationship with those pieces um, early in your career? Because if, if I understand correctly, you didn't really perform these much until relatively recently. That's, yeah, that's true. I was terrified of that. You know, I was always, you know, everybody feels very strongly about the Bach sonatas in particular. And I think maybe the same people feel about Beethoven violin concerto. For, for a conductor, I don't know what the equivalence would be, maybe Beethoven symphonies or, uh, you know, I don't know, Bach uh, B minor mass, or, I don't know, something, or St. Matthew's. I, you know, people feel very strongly, and I was just. I don't know, I felt like I was worried that uh, I'd fall short and, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't do them justice and, uh, you know, maybe there, there's kind of a judgment that I didn't want to, uh, you know, and, and so when I was 35, around, around then, I thought, this is crazy, I have to start playing this or they'll never improve. And then I started playing them and... Uh, I learned what so many musicians have always known and have said before. There is really no greater joy. There is no greater joy than, than playing the music of Bach, you know? Going on stage with that material, you know, going on stage with a great masterpiece like Beethoven Violin Concerto, this is it, you know? There is no greater joy than that. And let me bring you back to a part of Carlos's question earlier about your musical lineage, but going back even further in time, you were born in America, you moved to Israel when you were seven. So will you take us to those early years in, in your musical life and let's tie it over with your musical lineage, as Carlos put it. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> um. It's a little bit like the analyst's uh, couch, you know. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I um, I had I really had a very happy childhood. I was very lucky to be a second child. I was a, the middle child. Carlos, were you a second child as well? No, actually, first child. Oh, you were the first. Yeah. You were the first. I was a <laughs> second of three, so I was in in the middle, and uh, my parents were both scientists but you know they, they were um jerusalemites they they lived and grew up in jerusalem and uh, both learned music as part of their education you know i have one memory exactly one of um, my parents my dad one day reaching far into the back of the closet to pull out his old violin <laughs> and uh, he and my mom, my mom sat at the piano, and they, they both learned these instruments as children. It was just part of education, and uh, and they played the menuet from the eighth um, Beethoven violin sonata, you know, the, the G major violin sonata. And um, 
so that that's made an impression on me. I, I think I was maybe five years old at the time. <laughs> I, it just seemed like, oh, this is, this is a special thing, you know. This is yeah. an interesting thing they're doing, you know. It's a, and um, so yeah, somehow that was uh, that was inspiring. And there's a lot of music around in Israel always. Um, I was very lucky to start studying with a professor by name of Samuel Bernstein. Shmuel Bernstein, who was not related to Leonard Bernstein, um, who was really a wonderful man who, who loved music. And all of us that studied with him came away with it with a love of music, with a passion for music. He would, uh, he would have us uh, study, I, I would say, in the old hour tradition. You know, he would have us play scales and play double stop scales and um, you know he would um, keep us over he was very generous you know the lessons were due to be an hour he would keep us there for two hours and at the end he would give us candy you know <laughs> and then we would come back and so that's really the beginning of, of my musical education then I was very lucky to come to New York to study at Juilliard. And um, at Juilliard, I studied with Jens Ellermann and with Dorothy DeLay and with Hyo Kang, who you know, were all wonderful teachers who gave me so much. And I was really very lucky. And also just being around that student body was very inspiring. And um, yeah, and I kept with it and was very lucky to, to be able to perform. You know, from the time I was 17, I was lucky to have invitations to play concerts. And uh, then, you know, I've been very lucky that there have been invitations since. Something really exciting happened when you were 17 and you were asked to step in at the last minute for somebody else. Will you share oh, right. about that? Oh, I thought you were going to ask about something more private. Um, <laughs> no. We'll leave it for another that's, podcast. That's not, no, that's not, I didn't, I didn't mean anything. Um, it is true. Yes, I was very lucky. I was, a, a, you know, a 17-year-old junior in high school. I was in English class where we were studying the Canterbury Tales of Chaucer. You know, which I enjoyed, but um, wasn't really into. And um, there was a knock on the door, and uh, teacher, English professor, opened the door, and uh, and they said, "Look, Gil, can you please come down to the principal's office?" Which is the last thing you ever want to hear when you're 17 and a junior in high school. And I'm, okay, I'll go to the principal's office. Mm. And I went, um, and. Uh, <laughs> They said, look, Gil, we've had a call here from the London Symphony. And, um, you know, I got on the phone and it must have been a very desperate London Symphony Orchestra <laughs> that must have called a hundred violinists before um, who all couldn't make it for one reason or another. And... Uh, they said, look, Gil, we were kind of uh, looking for a violinist because Itzhak Perlman was going to 
play a festival of concertos here. And, uh, you know, do you think you would be willing to <laughs> go to the airport and get on the Concorde wow. to fly to London and uh, rehearse and perform tomorrow the Brooke and Sibelius Violin Concertos oh with Michael Tilson Thomas <laughs> conducting. And so, uh, you know, here I was kind of out of nowhere confronted with the option of either going back to English class or uh, heading to the airport and, uh, you know, sipping champagne on the Concorde on the way to London. <laughs> and so... So maybe without really thinking, I said, yeah, of course. <laughs> and so uh, I went over there and uh, it was an amazing uh, flight, I must say. Um, and then I got over there and Maestro Tilson Thomas could not have been more generous or more inspiring. You know, even two minutes before going on stage, I was suddenly feeling very nervous and he was so kind. I, I remember saying to him, I said, oh, these people are expecting Itzhak Perlman to walk out. And, uh, and he said something like, you know, just go out there and enjoy it. And, um, and you know, somehow I was very lucky, really. It, it was a slow news night and the planets were aligned a particular way and suddenly this became a, a kind of a, you know, human interest piece in the press, you know. So people wrote about it in newspapers and it was on television. And uh, and that really was my my big break, you know. Suddenly I had invitations to, to play concerts. And uh, yeah, it, it really, it really was, it was a very lucky, life-changing moment for me. And then you had to go back to high school and, and go back to English class at some point. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. You know, there, there, there's something I uh, also wanted to share with you. Um, people see you as a great violinist, as a great artist. I see you as a great family person. Uh, because whenever I see you, and I've had the privilege of working with you a few times, and, and it's always been a highlight, and, and we always talk about our families. You talk about your family, I talk about my family. Um, and uh, talk a little bit about this difficult balance uh, between a career such as yours where basically you can fill every week of the year if you wished, um, and your family or the way you see your family obligations. Uh, because if I had to say one thing about this pandemic, which I, I don't know if anybody is enjoying, but we are all experiencing in a different way. But for me, it's been an opportunity to really value my uh, family and to really value my uh, the contact with my family. So if you if you can speak to a, a bit about this balance between professional life or violin life and family, because you have a very beautiful family and one that is very unified. Well, yeah, actually, I wanted to ask you about this as well. 
Um, <laughs> because this is an interesting, you know, it's it's a tragic time, but ironically, it it has um, given us opportunities, you know. So one of one of those opportunities has been for me to to be with my family, which is my favorite thing to do, and I'm I'm so lucky. Um, you know, Adele Adele Anthony, the violinist, is is my wife, and I'm very lucky that she is. And we have three wonderful kids, and uh, it it really is um, it it really is wonderful to to have this time together with them. Adele and I were very lucky because um, I guess we were old enough when we started having kids that um, we didn't need to work, as you, as you said, um, you know, every day, like when we started out. And so our oldest son is now 17, and it was 17 years ago that I really cut back on the schedule, you know. When I was, when I was single, I, uh, I remember there were months when I would be home only two or three days in a month, you know, or you know, periods of long time when I was never really adjusted to the time zone I was in, you know, playing, you know, playing more than 200 dates a year. And, uh, and then, you know, 17 years ago, I, I sort of decided, well, I'll, I'll see if I can make this work playing 50 concerts a year. And sort of this magic number, you know, which never really stuck to, but just sort of a goal to aim for. And uh, and as as much as we could around New York City, and, and we're very lucky because there's a lot of classical music around New York, and um, yeah, so so that that was very lucky. I have to say, in my house, since this has started, there has been a lot more music than before. All five of us go to our instruments and practice and listen to music. How, how is it for you? How is it in the Prieto house? My kids, you know, they, they, they view the instrument in a different way in the sense that they, uh, I, I can't, I, it is not easy for me to make them practice. It doesn't come from them. All right. So. Right. It has to come from them. Yeah. And so, and I don't push because I don't want them to have this relationship with the instrument. But what I'm trying to do with them and succeeding part way is uh, like, you know, the other day, probably a very nice thing was I had a like a do you remember that game that's called Simon that, we, uh, you know, you play a melody and somebody, re, you know, repeats it on. Uh, they used to be these like squares on a, on a, on a circle. And I, I played a little Simon game with my daughter on the violin, and I found that she has an ear enough to repeat the phrases that I said. So uh, perhaps in a more humble way, uh, I, we, we have found that. We have also found, well, I have found that going back to knowing things like uh, the area of a triangle or the circumference of the circle or things like that <laughs> uh, are things that are worth revisiting, even if I 
you know, if you would have asked me a few months ago, are you ever going to remember what uh, pi r squared is, I would have told you, I think it's something mathematical, but right now, more than music, although I've been doing enough, my violin is right next to me, uh, I'm actually working with my kids who have these very strict school times. And it, and it's like really amazing how they cope um, and how they can deal with this, with this uh, situation of being far away from their teachers. But sometimes they ask for my help. So right now, after we finish this nice conversation, I, I will help my oldest daughter with a paper that she has to write about the Cold War, okay? Oh, and wow. so, <laughs> so I guess the difficult balance is how do I make her write the paper and me help her and not the other way around? So it's been, uh, for me, it's really been a learning experience about family balance. Raul has a little baby. So for him, he's not yet dealing with this issue of uh, three different distinct personalities who sometimes clash and who need different kind of care from their parents. But, uh, you know, you have three, I have three, they have different ages and they have different needs and they have different patients. And one thing, if I can say that I've gained great appreciation for, huge, is teachers, Okay, because teachers, I used to think that a teacher was good when a teacher would teach something well. And now I consider it just as important or even more their level of patience and love <laughs> for the kid. Because I and I'm their parent. Sometimes I lose patience. Gil, my daughter is working on. Mi la si do si la la sol fa mi re do si la si do re mi. Do you remember Vivaldi? Oh yes, yes. So she plays mi la si do si la la sol fa diez F sharp la sol fa mi re. And I say no, 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 Anna. It's an F sharp. It, it's not. You're playing an F sharp. It should be an F natural. And her initial response is, you don't know. <laughs> Which, you know, initially you can, you can take at heart and say, oh my God, you know, I'm completely botching the relationship with my kid. And, you know, slowly I find ways of saying, well, let's see. Let's see what sounds better. I take my violin, I play the F sharp, then I play the F natural, and I said... Okay, what sounds better to you, the F natural of the F sharp? And then, you know, she says, well, maybe the F natural. And then she has her weekly lesson with her teacher. And I'm there and I say, well, Adrian, um, what do you think sounds better? And then she plays the F sharp and the F natural and he starts <laughs> the laughing. So it's a different relationship from being away or from not being present. Uh, it's wonderful. It's harder, but it is what it is. And if I can share with both of you my kind of beliefs through this, 
is that one, it will shape our future in ways that we are only beginning to suspect and that should be good because I believe that when one is at the dark part of the tunnel, one should see always, one should always know fully conviction, full conviction that there is light at the end of the tunnel. But most importantly, as leaders, which all three of us are leaders in some way, just by being parents, we're leaders. But we should be imagining and be shaping what we want that light to look like. It, it seems to me like some years ago, 17 years ago, you did that. You, you, you changed from a 200 concerts a year to a 50 concerts a year. My year last year was 130 concerts and was a part-time father. And the part-time father part is the part that I'm going to change. And the balance is one that I'm going to change because if I feel now like we all feel constricted and we, we're going crazy because we can't go out and we can't travel and we can't do that, I'm now finding out that my wife was experiencing some of that when I was away and she was completely in charge of the three kids. So for me as a family, this experience has been one that will shape my life for the future. As a musician, I'm just trying to find out, but I'm so happy to talk to you because you are a family person before a musician and you are a living example of some of that balance. But share with us your thoughts as far as the day after. As you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, I'm very lucky to have made the choices that I was able to make, you know? I guess I was wondering, have you seen that YouTube video of the Israeli mom talking about the online, the distance learning? Oh, God, I love that. <laughs> it's really very funny. And it, um, I, think it, I, I think it came out like the third day of quarantine. It's well worth it. It's very short. It's this mom who just escapes the house for a couple of minutes and goes into her car. So really, um, touch wood. It's been really we, we've we've been very lucky in this house. We've we've been talking for almost fifty minutes with with Gil Shaham, one of the world's greatest violinists, but one of the great world's greatest guys. Too and nice, I yeah. think this topic that that we've touched about at the end about family is uh, really one that that I've always admired about you. Uh, and I'd like to, uh, knowing that we're uh, reaching the end of our conversation, uh, first of all, I, I, I'd like to, to thank you. There are many, many violinists. There are many, many great violinists, but you are on a platform of your own because of how much generosity you give on stage and how much generosity you give off stage. So I, I finally, I always say that what defines a great artist is really in the heart and it's really in how generous they are, how much of their time they give to others. And um, you always come to mind when 
Anybody ask me who are the great musicians that you are, admire? Yeah, and I'm not saying that to make you shy or to, no, but this is something that you need to know. So it's an honor for me and for the Orchestra of the Americas to be associated with you and to be part of that tour. And I'm sure we're going to cross paths after this. Well, I just want to say right back at you. Thank you for the kind words, but it's exactly describing yourself, you know. And I love those orchestras that we worked with. I can't wait to, to see you again and to hug you and to uh, make music together. I don't know when it will be, but um, one thing for sure is uh, I think when we see each other, we will be washing our hands <laughs> than we ever did before. I don't know about you, but my hand-washing technique has changed in the last couple of months. And I was always a big hand-washer, you know? You know how like wind players are always brushing their teeth, you know, or, uh, or singers, they're always worried about brushing their... Violinists, Correct me if I'm wrong, violinists are always washing their hands. <laughs> They're worried about how their fingers feel on the string and all. So I was always a big hand washer, but now I've really changed my technique. And you got to moisturize too. <laughs> you, you, in New York with all those heaters on, you have to moisturize. And you know, you got to go between the fingers, <laughs> you know, and the palms and the palms and then the back of the hand and then around the thumbs. And the wrist, very important, <laughs> completely new hand-washing technique for me, personally. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gil, with this light note, the best to Adele and to the kids. And uh, hang in there. You seem to be doing very well. And uh, that's certainly, I have to tell you that this last hour has been tremendously inspiring for me and will give me a lot of motivation over the next days. And we all look forward to seeing you again in person sometime in the future. Thank you both. Can't wait. I'm Carlos Miguel Prieto. And I am Raul Gomez. Talk to you next time. Soundpost is a production of the Orchestra of the Americas Group with additional support provided by MYS Portland. Visit theoagroup.org backslash soundpost to learn more.